0: Well, hello, First Baptist Church of Keller family. We come today to Lecture 3 in our Systematic Theology class. I hope that you've had the chance to be with us for the first two lectures. If not, those are on our website, uh, and so you can go back and listen at your leisure. I encourage you to do that because each lesson builds upon the next, and that's especially true as we transition from the doctrine of the Trinity to the doctrine of Christ today. Um, there's an interview in lecture two at the end with Dr. Barber that I think would be very helpful to you uh, to understand the role of church history and uh, the intersection between church history and systematic theology. And one of the things that Dr. Barber talks about in that interview is that church history really happens where systematic theology goes wrong. That is, most councils and creeds and doctrinal statements are written to refute error. And that is certainly true as it relates to the doctrine of Trinity and the doctrine of Christ, as we'll see today. The, the need to correct aberrant theology comes up in every generation. It really goes back to the time when the New Testament was being written. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, we find uh, the first time that a council of church leaders gets together to refute false doctrine, and that's called the Council of Jerusalem. And if you remember, there was a group within the church called Judaizers who were insisting that Gentiles who professed faith in Jesus first had to become ceremonially Jewish before they could become accepted into the church. Of course, the apostle Paul refuted that there was a council called in the city of Jerusalem representatives from various churches attended. And the decision of course is that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And so Thankfully, Gentiles are not required to become ceremonially Jewish before becoming Christian. Well, after the canon was closed at the end of the writing of the book of Revelation, in every generation, sometimes these needs to correct false theology would arise. A couple that we're going to discuss today are the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325 A.D., and the Council of Chalcedon, uh, which is in 451 A.D., The list of possible incorrect or or wrong or even heretical understandings about the nature of God are infinite. And so I'm not going to even attempt to try to list all the heresies that have come down through church history. Um, There is um, a story that is circulated through uh, the church world since I've uh, been aware. Um, And it's about a time in American history where there was uh, a real problem with counterfeiting. And so currency was being passed in the form of $20 bills. And there were multiple ways in which these bills were being counterfeited. And so the FBI was in charge of addressing this issue. And so the decision was made to train bank tellers in how to identify false currency. And the decision was made not to attempt to try to school these tellers in the hundreds of variations of counterfeit money, Rather, the decision was made to train the tellers with real money, to have them become so familiar with the genuine article that anything that was not aligning with the real currency was easily identifiable. And so that, I think, is the correct way to approach um, the study of theology. And so as we talk about the doctrine of Trinity, which we introduced last week, let me remind you, there are three core truths that if we'll firmly establish those in our hearts and minds, will help us to avoid error in this doctrine. The first truth is this, God is one. That's found, of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Christians are monotheist, aren't we? We don't believe in many gods. We don't believe in three separate gods, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in one God. The second foundational truth about the Trinity is that God reveals himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the third truth, and this is where so many in each generation get off the rails, is that each person of the Trinity is fully God. It's not that God the Father is the true God and God the Son and the Spirit are lesser. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, sharing all the attributes of God. And so there are some key biblical passages that uh, help us to develop and understand the concept of the Trinity, and I've asked my apprentice, Tyler Selfridge, to uh, join us today to read. So Tyler, will you read uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27? Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 say, Then God said,
1: Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them.
0: Now that is probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Uh, very early on, obviously, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. And the key there is the plural possessive pronoun our god said let us make man in our image and so obviously there's a plurality involved there and we see um, in the creation god the father speaking forth creation Uh, god the son is there according to john gospel of john chapter one in the beginning was the word and word was with god and the word was god All things were created by him and through him, and nothing was created that has been created except through him. That's speaking of the divine Logos, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. Then, of course, the scripture says that the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. So all three members of the Trinity are involved in in creation. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, a similar thing Um, Whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? There's that that plural.
1: Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my
0: right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, he was not speaking of David or some other historical figure. Uh, He was speaking, of course, of uh, the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had yet to be born and would not be for Several hundred years. Now we also see in the New Testament some key passages, and we see the consistency in the Old and New Testament themes of the Trinity. Uh, Tyler, read Matthew three, sixteen and seventeen, please. Matthew chapter three, verses sixteen
1: and seventeen say, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said,
0: This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." So here's a classic text from the New Testament, and just like at creation we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all together. We see at Jesus' baptism, Jesus is there of course, the one being baptized. We hear the voice of God, the Father from heaven, saying, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then we see the Spirit lighting, as it were, as a dove upon Jesus. And so that rules out um, the heresy of modalism that Dr. Barber touched on last week, the idea that uh, God only exists in one mode or one form. We see all three of the members uh, acting simultaneously. Then at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses
1: 18 through 20 say, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always
0: to the end of the age. Of course, this is the classic text uh, where we talk about the Great Commission, and Jesus says that when we go out and make disciples, we're to baptize those new disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit, showing the equality of all three members uh, of the Trinity. We see other passages in the New Testament, such as 1 Corinthians 12, 4, and 6, that show the workings of, of the Holy Spirit. Tyler, read 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, and also 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Verses 4 through 6.
1: Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them, all and everyone. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you.
0: And so you see the Spirit, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ active in uh, the work of his church in those two passages as well. Well, as I said, we have to know from a positive standpoint, what the Scripture says about the Trinity. But we also need to be able to recognize error as well. And there is a benefit from studying um, church history in that regard. Um, probably the classic document that stated, uh, really, once and for all, the biblical teaching of the Trinity and the relationship of the God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is something called... Uh, the Nicene Creed, which was uh, the result of the Council of Nicaea of of 325. Let me just read a paragraph of that to you. You've probably heard portions of it or uh, seen it in other doctrinal statements modified, but here's what it says. We believe in one God, the Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, things in heaven and things on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was made flesh, became man, suffered, and rose on the third day, ascended into the heavens, is coming to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Spirit, and those that say there was when he was not, and before he was begotten, he was not, and that he came into the being in what is not, of those that allege that the Son of God is of another substance or essence. And so you can see what the uh, Council of Nicaea was doing. They were addressing aberrant theology that was teaching some of those things that they refute. That jesus came to be at a later date that he doesn't share in the attribute of of eternal or that the holy spirit perhaps doesn't share in some of those attributes and and the bible clearly states that that's not the case and so uh, let's let's move on now and sort of transition into our next area of theology which is christology Uh, christology as you might guess is the study of christ the word christ means anointed one And there is quite a bit of overlap between uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and Christology because those are really segments of the doctrine of of the Trinity. Pneumatology is the study of the Spirit. Paterology, the study of the Father. Christology, uh, the study of, of the Son or the study of Christ. And so we're going to take the rest of today's lesson to talk about the nature of Christ. And then next week we're going to look at the work of Christ from a biblical standpoint. Another famous um, council of church leaders happened uh, over a century after Nicaea, and that was the the Council of Chalcedon. And that council established very firmly what the Bible has to say about the nature of Jesus. And there's three or four things there. Just as with the doctrine of the Trinity, if you can get a firm grip on these three or four things, positive statements it will help you to recognize there the first statement is this jesus is one person and so remember i said last week we're getting into some deep weeds theologically where they just got deeper because we talked about the trinity we said there's this paradox that god is one and yet he has three distinct persons and all of them share the same divine essence Well, now we talk about uh, Christ, Jesus, uh, the second person of the Trinity. He is one person, and yet he has two natures. And that's the second point about the nature of Christ. Though he is one person, he has two natures. And theologians refer to those two natures as his human nature and his divine nature. Now, a third point to recognize about what the Bible teaches about the nature of Christ is that even though he has two natures, Neither does violence to the other. One of the errors that comes up from time to time in the study of Christology is that uh, either Christ is not fully human or he's not fully divine, or that his divine nature sort of um, overtakes and absorbs his human nature at times. And, And the Bible doesn't teach that. And so get in your mind firmly. Though Jesus is one person, he has two natures. Neither of those natures does violence to the other, and here's probably the most important thing to remember about the nature of Jesus. Each of those natures is complete. That is, we would not say correctly that, that Jesus is part God and part man. Um, really, the way to say it is that he's altogether God and yet altogether man. So mathematically, he's 100% God and 100% man. Now, you math majors have a headache right now because uh, how can something be 100% something and 100% something else? Um, I don't know, and no one else does. yet. that is what the Bible teaches. And so remember I said last week the most important thing in studying the doctrine of the Trinity is humility. Well, that certainly is true when we talk about the nature of Christ, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Now, historically... Um, Through the centuries, there have been some very famous misunderstandings about the nature of Christ, and they still come up today under different names. And to help you recognize those, I've listed on your study guide today five or six of those most famous errors, and a brief definition I'm going to give you, just jot those down beside each of these words. So the, the first misunderstanding we saw in church history was something called adoptionism, and That sounds like what it is. Uh, Adoption is where someone who is not a natural child is adopted into a family and, and then takes on the rights and privileges of sonship. And so the idea of adoptionism is that Jesus was a man born like any other man, but at a point in history, God the Father adopted him as his son. And so the error there is that it denies the attribute of eternality. It denies that Jesus was there at creation or had any role in creation. Uh, Really, the classic view of adoptionism is that at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, that is when God the Father adopted him as as his son. Clearly, the Bible doesn't teach that. Another mistake is something called docetism, um, which is the root word which means to seem. The idea there is that Jesus really didn't have a a human body like we do. It it only seemed that he did. Um, And the reason being is that uh, the adherents of this doctrine of Docetism um, shared an old Greek philosophy that all things material and physical were inherently evil, and that because God is holy, he could not stand to have a human body. And so he just sort of was a a ghost-like figure who... um, to to a human perspective, had a body, but but really didn't. Of course, the Bible refutes that. You know, we we look at the whole of Scripture and we see that Jesus got hungry, he got thirsty, he got tired, he slept, uh, he got angry, he wept. Uh, th- this is not um, a phantasm. This is a, a literal human body. And so, and so, really, historically those within the church have gone to two extremes of error. They've either denied the full humanity of Jesus or else the pendulum swings to the other side and they deny the full divinity of Jesus. And so when we talk about the divinity of Jesus or the deity of Jesus, they mean the same thing. It just means that Jesus is God. And of course, um, that is uh, the clear teaching of Scripture. In fact, the Gospel of John thematically is all about Presenting Jesus as God Another error uh, historically is uh, Apollinarianism which denied that Christ had a human mind That he only had a d- divine mind uh, Another is Arianism this is one that Dr. Barber touched on last week The idea that Jesus was created By the Father Now they would say that Jesus is God's Highest creation but they Would say he is a creature like We are and of course we See um Manifestations is that today, particularly the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Sometimes they're called modern day Arianists. Um, and then there's one that's a, it's a funny word is uh, uh, monophysitism. And you have to run those syllables together, and you've probably heard it pronounced a number of ways. But but the, the prefix there mono means one, and the and the idea is that God doesn't have the two natures I referred to earlier, the human nature and the divine nature, they would say that these two natures sort of mixed together to create a third nature of which only Christ had that was uh, neither totally divine nor totally human. And a lot of these things I know probably seem like we're splitting hairs a little bit about things that are um, hard to understand. As my systematic theologian said, sometimes we try to scrut the inscrutable. Uh, but uh, as Christians, we certainly want to be precise as we can be when we talk about Christ, and we certainly want to be biblical. And so in the time we have left today before we hear from uh, our, our guest speaker today, I want to interact with an article that I recently came across uh, by a Christian named Summer Sorensen, in uh, which um, she gives a number of reasons why the Bible teaches that Jesus is, is God. And uh, beginning in the Old Testament, well, the author notes that the Old Testament predicted a divine Savior. And I often say this around Christmas time here. We read verses like Isaiah 9, 9 6, which say, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I don't know how we could be more clear in showing that uh, the Messiah, who, by the way, would not come for 800 more years when that was originally written, uh, would be God in the flesh. Uh, we see that uh, in other places. Micah 5.2, which predicts that uh, the Messiah would be born in the village of Bethlehem, says that his goings forth are long ago from the days of eternity. That speaks of the eternality of the second person of the Trinity, which is one of his core attributes. Uh, we see... Various titles for uh, Jesus that uh, are mentioned in the Old Testament that are applied to Christ in the New Testament. He is God in in every way. Uh, Just one example, Titus 2.13, I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. That's taken from Isaiah 43.11, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior. So in the Old Testament, God is presented as a great God and Savior in the New Testament. That title is applied to Jesus. We see that time and time again in the New Testament. We we see also um, in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, that Jesus possesses all of the the incommunicable attributes of God. We studied those attributes. You might go back and listen to last week's lesson. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Remember, he cast out demons. He has authority in this life to heal disease. He has also authority over the spiritual realm to cast out demons and to command them. Um, he uh, knows everything that people are thinking. He's immutable. He never changes. Um, and he does the works of God. And, and so um, great evidence in the New Testament that, that Jesus, of course, is, is divine. Um, some that were noted in his day is that he forgave sins. And people understood that only God could do that. That's why a lot of people got mad at Jesus. He went around forgiving sins. He, he claims to have the authority to judge the dead. This, of course, is uh, showing his, his deity. I think one of the great evidences that Jesus is God from the New Testament is that he received worship. Uh, there were times in places like the book of Acts where the apostle Paul was given the power to perform miracles, and some of these pagan Gentiles, when they saw these miracles, wanted to start worshiping Paul. And he always refuted them and said, I'm just a man like you are. But when Jesus performed a miracle and people started worshiping him as a blind man did in John chapter 9, or um, many different places where people worshiped Jesus, John twenty twenty eight, where Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Um, you never see Jesus rebuking those people for worshiping him. Um, in fact, just the opposite. Uh, when the lady poured out the alabaster bottle of perfume, Jesus didn't rebuke her at all. He uh, congratulated her for that. So the, the Bible says that Jesus is God in many places. I, I quoted earlier John 1, 1 through 3. That's the classic text that Jesus is God, the divine Logos, but if you want to go back and read on your own, places like Romans 9, 5, Philippians 2, 6, Hebrews 1, 8, 1 John 5, 20, all of those say similar things, um, that Jesus is God. One of the things you will sometimes hear from unbelievers and those who are really critical of the New Testament, especially the doctrine of the deity of Jesus, is that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, that's not true, a number of places where Jesus claimed to be God. Uh, famously, John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. But probably the clearest place is, is in that same eighth chapter of John. Jesus said, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, every Jewish person recognized that that title of I am was reserved God and that's why he was accused of blasphemy His enemies the Pharisees Obviously knew that he was claiming to be God And that's what made them so angry because they didn't believe That he is God So, so that's just an introduction to the nature of Christ uh, The doctrine of Christology Next week we're going to look at the work of Christ Where we talk about uh, his incarnation His virgin birth Uh, The Three Offices of Christ, of Prophet and Priest and King. And so I hope you'll uh, tune in one week from today. And right now, I want to introduce you to our guest by phone. And uh, this is Dr. Matt Pitts. Matt is the pastor of the Minden Baptist Church in Minden, Texas. And uh, Dr. Pitts, welcome to the program today.
2: Thank you. Appreciate you having me on.
0: Well, Matt, uh, I know you grew up here in First Baptist Church of Keller. In fact, I think you were a senior in high school when I first came here as a seminary intern, and you went off to college. Tell us how you became interested in theology, and may even share a little bit about your calling into ministry and how you met your wife, and how everyone is doing today.
2: Sure. Uh, well, um, I in in uh, college was really where I began to study the Bible in earnest and uh, to start to read. Books of Theology by guys like R.C. Sproul and John Piper. Um, I had felt a call to ministry uh, in high school and started doing a little bit of Bible teaching, but really caught fire um, when I was in college. And uh, that's when I met my wife, too, Sarah. Uh, We met at Texas A&M while we were serving in a ministry there called Impact, where uh, we helped put on a camp for freshmen coming to A&M. Um sort of like a church camp and um so in in uh in college, I made some friends who were also headed toward vocational ministry and we studied the bible together and and read and talked about a lot of things and then uh Sarah and I got married uh right after we graduated from a and m in two thousand and five. And uh, she knew I wanted to go to seminary and agreed to go with me. And so right after we got married, I started at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary there in Fort Worth and completed my MDiv there. And uh, while I was doing that, I had the privilege of being a pastoral intern there at First Baptist Keller where I'd grown up and uh, got to learn a lot about what it uh, means to do ministry, what it looks like to be a pastor and care for your people and just learned a lot, a lot, a lot of valuable lessons um, over those years there, and and then was called in uh, April of 2009 to be the pastor of Minden Baptist Church out here in East Texas, and uh, so Easter Sunday of 2009 was my first year or first Sunday there, and uh, been there 11, been here 11 years now and uh, went back to school while I was here. Uh, the church made it possible for me to go back to school and completed a Doctor of Ministry degree at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, because I realized if I was going to do this for 30 or 40 years, I, I wanted some more training. And so I uh, got to do some more school, which has been a huge blessing, and uh, just grateful for this for this church and for my wife supporting me through all that. When we moved here, uh, Grace, our oldest, was about six months old. And uh, so this is the only uh, church and home that she remembers. And uh, she loves it here, as we all do. And uh, since we moved out here, we've had three boys. And uh, so we have a house full now, uh, Will and John. And the latest is Asher, who is uh, well on his way toward walking, even though he's only about 10 months old. And uh, so it's very exciting around our house right now.
0: Well, it's a joy to hear that, Matt. Um, Matt, I know that you teach systematic theology in addition to your duties there at the church in a local Christian school. I know that because you graciously sent me your notes, and uh, our people are benefiting from that, I hope, uh, as I'm using your notes uh, to help me prepare for my lessons. Um, How do you do that? What's your philosophy in trying to teach young people systematic theology?
2: Yes. So I uh, have always loved teaching. Um, I got to do a lot of teaching even before I was a pastor. I loved teaching the Bible. Um, while I was there at, at First Baptist Keller, uh, one of my main responsibilities was uh, teaching the uh, college students there in the college ministry. And um, I've just always loved getting to teach young people. Um, and so uh, when I finished My uh, doctor of ministry degree, I I wanted to to do some more teaching, um, and uh, an opportunity came up to teach at uh, the local Christian school here. And so I teach the oldest uh, high school Bible class. Uh, Right now I have uh, 11th and 12th grade students this year. It's my second year there. And what I try to do with them is I try to um, take advantage of, of what I think is a really unique opportunity uh, I'm with them four days a week. I mean, obviously not right now because of the situation with the virus. I'm, I'm teaching them online. But but under normal circumstances, I'm with them four days a week for about 45 minutes. And uh, in that environment, I can teach them a lot of things that um, normally we don't have time, even in the church, to do. Um, if you think about four days uh, a week of 45 minutes, that's more than, I mean, that's that's the most that even our most faithful church members usually get okay. at church. And so um, I try to really uh, stretch them and challenge them and uh, and pour as much into them as I can that I think will help them uh, in the years ahead. Um, so I, I, last year I, I taught a systematic theology class for them. And what I told them up, up, pretty much up front was, you guys can learn physics and calculus and chemistry, and so you can learn theology too and so they learned, you know, how to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity and how to explain it from scripture and they learned how uh we, you know, understand the the person of Christ that he's one uh person and two natures that he's fully god and fully man and 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 high school students and even younger kids I think, but uh high school students can learn that stuff and learn how to articulate those things and uh, it gives them a a, a sturdy foundation for Uh, heading into college and their adult years.
0: So at at what age would you say we should start teaching children theological principles?
2: The younger the better. Um, The the younger kids uh, soak it up even faster (laughs) than the older kids.
0: Well, Can can we talk a little bit about uh, specifically the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, One of the questions we pastors often get from our members is, is it appropriate to address our prayers to any or all three members of the Trinity?
2: Yes, that's a, a, a really good question, and uh, I think that uh, it's definitely uh, allowable uh, to pray to all three members of the Trinity, and the reason why we would say that is because, uh, as you said, they're all God, they're all fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and uh, so it's appropriate that we worship all three members of the Trinity, and uh and to to desire to pray to a particular member of the Trinity, whether it's the Son or the Holy Spirit, uh would not want to discourage anybody from that because, again, they are fully God. However, uh, I also want to emphasize that the biblical pattern, the New Testament pattern for prayer is that we pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. So whenever prayer is modeled for us or taught to us in the New Testament, the emphasis consistently is on us praying to the Father. So the the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, begins, Our Father in Heaven. Um, and uh, in Ephesians 2, it talks about how we all now have access to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. And so it's appropriate that the majority of our prayers are addressed specifically to the Father. Uh, but just like uh, in some of our best hymns, we sing to all three members of the Trinity, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, I think it's appropriate to pray to all three at times as well.
0: Well, I know that uh, you've been at the same church there, Menden Baptist, for 11 years. Ha- have you seen an impact um, of verse-by-verse expository preaching in-, in the lives of your people and-, and in your congregation?
2: I know the main thing that I've seen is um, people... Who uh, appreciate the way that that preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible uh, helps them to to grasp uh, sort of the 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 bigger sweep of things. Um, so, for example, when um, when you preach through a book of the Bible, this Sunday's sermon is pretty clearly connected to last Sunday's sermon, and so on and so on. And so, you're able to kind of people are able to follow the argument of a of a writer like Matthew or Paul or or John or whoever's book you may be studying through. And so uh, I've been really encouraged to hear um, how people uh, appreciate the way that helps them grasp the Bible uh, better in, in many ways when you're working verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Uh, there, There's, a, of course, a, a time for addressing particular issues or preaching on a particular text, uh, here and there, but but going through a, books of the Bible at a time, uh, I've just really seen people uh, appreciate that, and, and I, th- I feel like it serves them um, to help them uh, understand what the Bible is saying uh, better when they're able to build on what they're learning from one week to the next.
0: How do you strategically and systematically uh, try to incorporate theological truths and and core doctrine into your ongoing teaching ministry
2: we're we're sort of a, a a pretty traditional church and so we still have sunday evening services uh and we have a wednesday night bible study and prayer meeting um and so i have taught through uh, systematic theology um a couple different times uh in one of our evening services over the last few years finishing up doing that a third time here now um One time we did it through the Baptist Faith and Message, the other two times we've been doing it through a systematic theology class like what you're doing here. And um, it it does take time because, um, you know, like I said earlier, we only have one or two or three times a week often that we get to speak into our, our people's lives and uh and help them to learn these things and uh just like with us when we were in seminary it it takes time even even when you're sitting in class it takes time for those things to become a part of your vocabulary like you're saying so uh it's helpful to teach uh those things in in those extra classes and then uh to reinforce those in your preaching uh but at the same time um you know we we also uh will When when those things come up in a sermon, we might use the vocabulary, but then we also define it because we know not everybody there has got to go to the class or might not remember the term, or they may be a first-time visitor, never been in church, and so we want to be as clear as we can uh, while also trying to um, help our people grow in their understanding of Scripture and theology. Our job when we're preaching is to to serve our people. We want to feed them, and and if if all we've done is, Uh, convince them that we know some fancy words that they don't we haven't served them or helped them our main job is to be clear and so we want to make sure that whatever we're teaching uh, everybody's able to understand it whether they've been listening to us preach and teach for the last 10 years or this is the first 10 minutes we want to make sure that they understand what we're saying
0: well matt uh, i want to say thank you for visiting with us uh, today and please uh, greet your family on our behalf I want to say to our church family, you've heard me say that we're planning a conference on the Doctrine of Assurance in the fall, and uh, one of the keynote speakers that I've invited is Dr. Pitts, and so Matt, we're looking forward to seeing you and pray that we'll be able to be meeting together by then. Let's close our class today with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for things that we've talked about today. And Father, we always want to speak correctly and precisely and biblically about you. We never want to say anything that's false. We never even want to entertain ideas that are unworthy about you. So guard our hearts and minds. Direct us through your word by your spirit, Father. I pray that uh, you would open our eyes of understanding, even as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, that we would understand the height and depth and the breadth of the love of God and and our own salvation. Thank you for men like Dr. Pitts, who labor so faithfully in the word. We pray for his congregation that he serves, Menden Baptist Church. We pray for his health, that of his family. Watch over and protect them. Continue to use them for your glory. We pray you dismiss us now with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.